This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. My life has been bookended with a nearly fetishistic love of animals. For most of my early years, I didn't own any pets. Neither of my parents were pet people, so to speak. And as a result, I never understood where my passion for domesticated animals originated. The only pet I ever had growing up was a frog my dad found late one August evening while I was spending the summer in a Catskill sleepaway camp. My brother and I insisted on keeping the frog through the fall, and we ingeniously named our new amphibian friend Jumpy. Together we decorated a big fish tank with twigs and leaves and pine combs. In order to feed the frog, my parents were forced to scour the neighborhood searching for bugs. They had to do this without us, as I was too squeamish to help them, and my brother was too little. Invariably, when they found some living insects to feed the famished frog, I became distressed by the concept of killing the woebegone bugs and cried when the frog snapped up its prey in one fell swoop. Needless to say, Jumpy lived with us only a few short weeks. One day I came home from school and his tank was empty. Mom and Dad told me they had taken him to the park and set him free to live in what was described to me as a frog paradise. As punishment to my practical parents, I begged them for a dog. They said no. Then I demanded a cat, and again I was refused. No one could quite understand why and where my passion for house pets came from, and my perplexed parents tried to make it up to me by presenting me with a glass poodle with pink fur my dad won at the annual Jewish community carnival. They named the dog Susie. I assumed it was because my middle name is Susan, and as bizarrely cute and as, as, as the glass poodle with pink fur was, I was nevertheless inconsolable. I didn't have the impetus to get another pet until five years ago when I took in a gray tabby I call Roscoe. Roscoe is a magical feline, originally adopted only because I had a persistent mouse problem and every other dweller in my apartment building owned a cat, hence the mouse capade that was happening in my home. Because I thought Roscoe was lonely, Shortly after he came to live with me, I adopted a companion cat for him I named Lucy. Though she hated both of us on sight, I didn't have the heart or the nerve to send her packing, and she has terrorized us both since the day we got her. By the following year, my furry family had grown fourfold. I adopted two dogs as well, one because I got depressed and thought a dog could mend a broken heart, which it can, by the way, and a second one because she was abandoned at my dog walker's home. Though Maria, my dog walker, loved her madly, she had no extra room or money to take care of another soul. 
So I took Duff in as my bewildered friends demanded I stop before I ended up a weird middle-aged woman with no one to talk to but their vet. This was further compounded by the subsequent demise of the relationship I was then in, as my paramour demanded that the pet sleep nowhere near the bed, told me I had an unhealthy affinity for the furry four, and insisted that I choose. It was either him or them. Since I believe that how a person treats animals is a testament to who they are as people, I chose to keep my family intact, as heartbreaking as it seemed at the time. According to the American Pet Products Manufacturers Association, 63% of U.S. households currently own a pet. In fact, this country is now producing more pets than people. In 2006, $38.4 billion was spent on our furry friends, up from $36 billion the year before. More and more companies traditionally known for human products are now expanding into pet fare. Companies including Omaha Steaks, Origins, Harley-Davidson, and Old Navy are now offering lines of products ranging from dog shampoo, pet attire, and gourmet treats. Hotels across the country are adopting new pet-friendly services, including oversized pet pillows, plush doggy robes, check-in gift packages, and a turn-down treat. Some hotels even have a licensed dog masseuse on staff. According to Steve Dale's Pet Central, animals are now members of the family, so it should seem as no surprise that 54% of dogs and 43% of cats receive Christmas gifts. 63% of all dogs sleep anywhere they downright please, including sharing the bed with their owners. A noted cultural anthropologist Grant McCracken recently wrote a piece on his popular blog about a survey stating that 94% of owners believe their pets have human-like personality traits. 45% prefer talking to their pets compared to 30% preferring conversation with their spouse. And 56% surveyed admitted to very likely risking their own life for that of their pet. So what's going on here? Casey Cole, the director of UCLA's People-Animal Connection, has reviewed studies of the human-animal bond and is convinced that there are many social, psychological, and physiological benefits. Her research reveals that when asked to perform a stressful math equation, pet owners showed less stress in the company of their pets than in the company of friends. Other studies have found that owning a pet relieves depression and reduces blood pressure. Cole believes that animals contribute to raising self-esteem and significantly lower anxiety levels. And most impressively, she states that heart attack patients with pet companions survive longer than those without. Not long ago, I found the origin to my obsession with pets. While cleaning out a storage space I own on 11th Avenue, I came across an old wobbly box labeled linens in my grandmother's handwriting. I gingerly opened it up and saw a ramshackle stack of old sheets and pillowcases that I used during my college days that my parents and my grandparents owned prior and shrieked at the outdated early 80s paisley patterns. As I poured through the pile, I came upon a plastic storage bag containing some yellowed pillowcases. As I unzipped the bag, 
I realized what was in front of me, my first childhood pillowcases. The front of the case featured a little girl with freckles and pigtails lying in a big fluffy bed surrounded by a dog, a cat, a turtle, a pig, and a bird under the Comic Sans-like headline, Friends You Can Count On. The back featured a counting poem that read, One is for Susie, all curled up in bed. Two is the bunny, asleep on her head. The pillowcases had been repaired many times, holes sewn up, ends frayed bare, and they were dotted with makeshift patches. Here was my whole life. I felt as, a, as if I was looking at a science project. As I fingered the linen cases, I realized I was. Cats, dogs, frogs, pillowcases, people. Here, right in front of me, was the lineage of my heart. Here was the evidence and the effect of love on a pillowcase. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Andrea Dezu. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about her. Andrea Dezu is an artist, a writer, an educator, and a designer. She is the Assistant Professor of Media Design at Parsons School of Design in the Communication Design and Technology Department, where she teaches MFA and BFA courses ranging from Interface Studio and MFA Thesis to Visual Narrative and Book Design. She has shown in international art exhibits, such as the New York Armory Show and Art Basel Miami, and her work has been included in prestigious public and private collections. Andrea's illustrations appeared on the cover of Print Magazine and the New York Times. Her writing and art was published in Print, McSweeney's, Blab, and Esopus. Her most recent projects include a large-scale public art mosaic commissioned by the MTA Arts for Transit for the Bedford Park Boulevard subway station in the Bronx. And Andrea is the 2005 recipient of the UCross Foundation's Lois Nelly Gill Award for Female Visual Artist of Exceptional Merit. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, Debbie. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for being here on the show. So I want to ask you, this is a question I love to ask um, exceptional people. Do you remember your first creative experience? Wow, that's a great question. Um, what do you mean creative experience? When I felt that I was making something creative or yes, exactly. thinking... The first time you remember doing something creative or thinking creatively or seeing the world in a particularly creative way. I remember having um, drawn all my life and I remember getting in trouble a lot for <laughs> what I thought was actually a very good and creative activity in school. I was in first grade and... Um, School was extremely boring for me, and I already knew how to read and write at the time. So I just felt that I could instead draw while the other people in the class were doing the alphabet. So, of course, the teacher caught me and called my mother in, and it was a big um, ordeal. And my mom tried to explain that you can do that in class, that there's rules. Uh, you can do what you're doing at home. And so whatever rules applied at home or elsewhere suddenly didn't apply at school, so I had to do it in secret from then on. Wow. So why, how did you learn to read and write before going to school? 
Um, I don't know. We were just going on the street. I remember asking the letters and my grandmother and my mom would tell me the letters and then, you know, slowly I just started to read them together. My son did the same thing and a lot of people I know learned to read and write before they went to school. So I don't think it was very unusual. It was just unfortunate that we had to go do grades one after the other. You couldn't skip and it was just a little bit boring at first. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, so you said you had to do your, your drawing in secret. Yeah, under underneath the uh, books. Underneath. Oh, so you still did it in class. Yeah. I was imagining you in your bed underneath the covers doing secret drawings. So you covered your books, you covered uh, your drawings with books and, and still did it in class. Yeah. Did you I get did. caught again? No. <laughs> <laughs> so you I were successful at sneaky, doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Surreptitiously. Um, wonderful. Well, we have to take our first break. When we come back, I want to talk to you all about your magnificent work. Um, I'd like to let everybody know in the meantime that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, educator, illustrator, and artist, Andrea Zezo. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. ones stock mortgage retirement wealth we cover it all voice america business welcome to voices of design brought to you by adobe where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them honest is a design studio that works in a variety of media carrie murnian and john balat started the company so that they could collaborate on projects together carrie john tell us a little bit about how you work i think a lot of our ideas are generated from our personal projects. You know, we got into film by doing little things on the side, you know, with our camera here. And we hope that freshness actually is imbued into the commercial projects because that's what makes them different than everything else. So. You know, even if you do the most boring job, that you can, you know, put something creative into it, you know. You can you know, choose, like, a fun typeface or, you know, something as kind of small as that that gives you a little bit of pleasure. I think you can always add, like, a little bit of fun to any project. Yeah. And that's kind of what we try to do. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Carrie and John talk about how they were influenced by old school design. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City. A benefit for the city of New Orleans, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masada. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. 
Welcome back. It is 3.17 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, educator, illustrator, and artist Andrea Dezu. If you'd like to join our conversation, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And we do have a caller, and it is Gregory from New York. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Thank you. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Gregory. It was very, it was very interesting what you're talking about, that you were bored in school. Um, how old is your son? He's 14. Ah, so he's, he's been in school. So, so it's a two-part question. Um, I, do you think that... M- most creative people um, are bored in school because I was. So I, I'm curious. And that's very that? interesting because you went to school in America and I went to school in Romania, which is like an old-fashioned... It was a very old-fashioned, very... The teacher stands up front and 40 kids are sitting two by two in benches and it was very non-interactive teaching practice. The teacher was lecturing and we were basically listening. <laughs> but... Um, I think that a lot of creative people have trouble in school because the way um, most schools teach uh, is very geared towards um, a different kind of, a different way of teaching or or learning or comprehending. Um, And I think sometimes uh, creative people just learn in a different way or, or... Exactly. So, yeah. Was your son born in school, did you find, or is he a creative person? Yeah, we had some trouble with him too. So he was actually advanced in some classes, and from then on it was better. But yeah, sometimes we have that problem. Were you always bored in school? Did you find that was it always a struggle for you, or did you finally find some way to make peace with it? I really liked college. I was very bored all the way through high school, and I went to art high school. But we had to do math and physics and all that stuff. But in college, I really, really loved what I did, and it was also a time when. I lived in Hungary, and there was no more censorship. This was after the Berlin Wall came down, and so we had access to books that I didn't even know existed uh, in my life before, and that was just an unbelievable opening and just so much stuff going on. So I, I really enjoyed college. Great. Well, thank now, you very much. Gregory, before, before you go, um, yeah. um, well, we missed you last week. You, thank for, you. Thank you for I calling you. back. Um, so Andrea came in and she said, she asked me if, if I thought that Gregory might be calling in today. <laughs> and I said, well, I hope so. He didn't call last week, but maybe he was away. So, oh, thank um, you very much. And what do you think <laughs> of those pillowcases? Oh, I'm probably just going to cherish them yes. for the rest of my life. I would, I would. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks thank for you, calling, Gregory. Gregory. So, Andrea, a, a question about your teaching. Now that you're a teacher, has um, the way that you were taught influenced how you teach and what not to do and what to do? I think so. Um, I think what I really, one thing that I learned in art school, in art high school, was that you can only really get better if you work a lot and that there has to be some kind of rigor and discipline in how you practice your art and how much um, actual work you put in it and how much is enough and that it can never be too much. Mm. And so... I think that is something that I'm really emphasizing with my students. I want them to take it very seriously, be rigorous about it, um, have a um, practice that they keep up, and I usually expect them to work a lot and very hard and put a lot of thought in it. Uh, What I'm not doing, which was also in my high school, 
uh, and in previous schools it humiliates students. I really hate it when teachers um, threw my drawing on the floor and stamped on it, stepped on Did it. Did they actually do that with <coughs> your work? They did it with all of our works. Uh, I don't know why. A lot of our art schools have that practice of humiliating the students and telling how bad they are and how hopeless they are. And I, I don't do that. I don't think that ever helped anyone to, you know, stress students out, to humiliate them. But at the same time, I'm quite tough on them. Um, and tough in what way? What, how do you, how do you expectations. help? Expectations. Mm -hmm. I, I have high expectations. I expect them to be there. I, I don't tolerate absences, and um, I really appreciate when somebody works not for my sake, but that they develop their own individual um, practice through the assignments. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your work. Um, I just finished reading your incredible book, your Andrea Zezu's fetish book, um, wherein you describe and showcase your fascination with unusual things. Uh, insects, matchsticks, kaleidoscopes, shoes, hearts, space, carnivals, candy wrappers. What is it about these unusual things, these usual sort of what Paola Antonelli would call humble masterpieces that you find most intriguing? I find it's very intriguing that they are not trying to be something they are not and they are not trying too hard and that they very often defy convention, visual conventions, and um, I find a lot of originality and a lot of um, un previously unseen imagery and juxtapositions in these um, not the usual suspect kind of designs or, or, or artifacts, um, which I really enjoy. I I find that when artists or designers get inspired by, you know, art annuals or design annuals or other design, um, that for me is usually less interesting than any of these found kind of strange little um, objects that were not necessarily designed by award-winning designers, mm -hmm. and they might be quite obscure, and they might just fulfill... Um, function to wrap a piece of candy and um, yet especially when you open them they are just really amazing and they make me think of images that I haven't thought of before or to put together things that I, I didn't see before. Mm -hmm. Now I know that you ha have a particular um, love and respect for insects and um, I particularly love your piece, Coffins for Dead Insects. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And I love that you think that insects are beautiful and perfect in every way. And for our listeners that might not be as familiar with all of your work, can you tell us just a bit more about the coffins and also why you think that insects are so perfect? I spent a um, few weeks in Virginia at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts a few years ago as an artist in residence. And... I found all these amazing insects everywhere, dead insects that I've never seen before, like really big ones and really strange ones. <coughs> and they looked like they just dropped dead <coughs> in certain places, on windowsills, on the floor, on the path as I was walking. And um, I just collected them because I wanted to draw them and they looked really 
gorgeous and every little leg and everything was in place, nothing was missing. And I just thought that these guys died from a natural death. They weren't killed by something, they weren't torn apart, they just lived their lifespan and died peacefully of old age. And after I had a lot of them, I started to think about how to memorialize them or how to mm -hmm. create something around them to incorporate them in work. And the best way, it seemed to use birds because that was also something that grew abundantly um, on the campus where we spent our residency. And so I just started to create these little burr coffins around these insects and, and that's how that started. But you also do a lot of drawing of, of insects in your work and um, bugs, flowers, a lot of nature references. Um, but then that's also um, juxtaposed with the aesthetically unusual, things that are really odd, things that are really strange. Um, there's a very interesting, um, I think, tension and appreciation of things that are both beautiful and things that are both, um, I don't want to say ugly because I don't feel like ugly is the right word, but probably more um, frightening. Mm -hmm. a lot of, yeah. There's a lot of death in your, in your uh, work as well. What attracts you to this sensibility, this, this sense of morbidness? Um, I remember when I was even a very young child, I was preoccupied by death. And I don't know if it's something you're born with or if it's something that you develop. But I remember being maybe four or five years old or even younger, and my grandmother um, was always talking about death. She was obsessed with it. She had um, cancer uh, many years earlier, and she was still in that mode of any day I can die, it can come back and I can die. Oh, okay. And we were three or four or five, and she would tell us, like, well, when I'm going to be dead and I'm going to be buried under the ground, and you know what happens there, and then she would explain all the process that happens after you bury someone. And for me, this was very normal because that's what we were talking about all the time. So then I remember my mother coming home once from work and telling my grandmother, why don't you tell them stories about butterflies or, or just regular children's stories? Why do you always have to talk about death with them? This is so strange. And I remember that moment. It was the first moment I thought that not everybody thinks that this is normal, that we have this little... Um, world with my grandmother that we share this death stuff in, but that um, not everybody has that um, appreciation or interest for it. So because it started so early, I'm not sure if it's like um, something that comes with us or it's um, breathing. Or <laughs> <laughs> I just find it very um, interesting. It's, it's very um, attractive to me to work with these images, to, with the morbid images and the beautiful images and juxtapose them. And for a very long time, I resisted um, doing things that were out of the ordinary that way because I thought that um, a real artist or a real designer has to do things a certain way. And then after a while, I just thought, you know what, I just, I'm just not that person. I just want to do what i attracted to. And then I started doing these things. What, what were the things that you thought that you should be doing? 
Um, study drawings, I was always um, considered a bad drawer in high school. Really? Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't know how to draw. Because where I come from, the idea was that there's one ideal way of doing stuff. There's yeah. one ideal way of drawing. And if you can do that kind of drawing, which in my case was this very academic, very rigid way of um, figure study, then you're not an artist. You're not a real artist. And Many things were like that, like there was a perfect way of doing something, which was one way, there was no alternative, and if you couldn't do that, then, you know, you were doomed. So that was one thing, I really tried really hard to be a good um, study drawer, but I could never achieve that. It also had to be a certain size, which just didn't work for me, it had to be big. You had to draw with charcoal, it had to be big on a white paper, and it had to be a human figure, and it had to look like a, this really lush baroque mm-hmm. study. So how would you describe your work now as compared to that? Now I think it's more like I reconciled myself with my limitations, and I just work within that. Well, we're going to come back after the break and talk about how you work, um, the process that you do things, uh, the way that you sketch, which I find absolutely magnificent. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, educator, illustrator, and artist, Andrea Zezu. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. Okay. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Carrie Murnian and John Malott of Design Studio Honest. Carrie and John, tell us about coming from old school design. We went to Parsons together here in New York, and we were the last class that they taught paste-ups to. And at the time, we kind of knew this is going to be obsolete, you know, soon, but... Yeah, it still, I think, informed us in terms of some of our design skills. I think that's something that we try to keep in all of our work is that there was a hand, like a real hand involved rather than just completely this, you know, computer design thing or yeah. computer, I don't know, animated thing. And that whole thing of a sketch first, you know, at least you know, get the idea going and then you can start the real creative process after that. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Carrie and John talk about inspiration. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. You know, when you talk about jazz, most people think of the blues. But Matisse, Bearden, Lawrence, Stuart Davis, and other 20th century masters inspired by this music saw a whole range of colors. For me, jazz is a visual medium. And maybe nobody proves that better than Nicholas Troxler, who spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. Now you can hear it from the man himself, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's acoustic, Masada. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the most noble city of New Orleans, Saturday, March 10th at Jazz at Lincoln Center in the House of Swing. Go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime event and see how Troxler saturates his work with the rhythmic energy of pulsating swinging jazz music. Yes, indeed. Hi, 
I'm Ron Jaswalski of Del Monte Foods Corporation, and I'm here to invite you to attend the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design Conference this April in New York City. You might have heard of the Bad Boys of Design segment on Design Matters podcast, but now you can see it in person. The Fuse event is proud to announce their own version of the show, the Bad Boys of Brand Design, as the official kickoff to the 2007 event. Join me along with others from Colgate-Palmolive, Starbucks, Johnson & Johnson, and Georgia Pacific as we discuss how design can be aligned, leveraged, managed, and integrated to best position a brand in the marketplace. Plus, hear from the design leaders from OXO, Procter & Gamble, Martha Stewart Living, Omnimedia, and more who will give you actionable ideas for fueling change and driving growth in your company. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com, or you can email direct at register at iirusa.com. If you mentioned that you heard about the event from Design Matters, you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I hope to see you April 16th to the 18th at Pier 60 at Chelsea Piers in New York City. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is designer, educator, artist, and illustrator, Andrea Zezu. If you'd like to speak with Andrea, the phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And, Andrea, I'm very happy to tell you that the other person who you wanted to call is on the line. Isabel, oh, we're yes. Design Matters. Oh, hi. Hi, Isabel. <laughs> well, hey, Debbie. Hey, Andrea. I actually do have a question because I was intrigued. You, I heard that you, you said after the Berlin Wall came down, books were available that you didn't even know existed. Yes. Can you give examples of some titles that really wowed you? And do you have a favorite writer or genre of writing now that so many more things were open to you? I remember um, reading Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> in college um, and um, I remember reading things that here might be even a little old fashioned there was um, oh my god what was the title something with a mandarin duck um, what's the guy's name Tom Wolf mm-hmm. oh. he had one that was called um, Our House or Bauhaus and that was really, really amazing to me, besides Foucault. Um, and I read a lot of his stuff that was translated in Engli- in, into Hungarian from English. And then just contemporary literature, which in Romania we didn't have um, any kind of access to. We read all the classics, and uh, literature kind of stopped um, in like the 1940s for us. <laughs> Because after that, um, nothing of consequence was really published. Okay. Thank you. This is really interesting. Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm glad I was one of two that you wanted to call. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad that you're here and that you're bringing such an interesting, diverse eye to contribute to creativity. So thank, thank you. Welcome to America. Thanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Andrea, we also had a, I had a, a listener uh, with uh, an email question that she sent in. Uh, Sarah from New York asks, when you were starting out, 
What kept you from being thrown into one category or another, from being considered only a writer or a designer or an illustrator or an artist? Or did anything ever prevent that from happening? Well, I guess if you do all of those things and if you have certain amount of visibility in all of them, if you write and it's published a little bit and then you do art and it's shown and you do all these different things and you don't want to kind of settle on just one, then you can't really be categorized as, as just one because you're engaged in all the different ones. And some people like to do one thing and some people like to do several things. And for me it was a dilemma whether I wanted to be a writer or an artist early on when I was 14. Um, we had to kind of at that time decide in the system that I went to school with which school do you want to go, art school or uh, humanities. And I went to art school but I didn't quite give up the other um, interests either. And so it just happens, I guess, you know, if you do all of those things, then um, you just start to be looked at as someone who does all of those different things. Do you prefer one discipline to another? No, no, not really, because there I like to tell stories, and so some stories... I can tell better in one medium and others in another. When I write, um, I think about writing as making pictures with words or making um, mo moving narratives like films with words. I imagine the story as a movie and I imagine where I want to step in the story. Sometimes I don't step in at the beginning but in the middle, and I imagine it visually, and that's how I write. Do you feel like you're better at one discipline than another? Um, I think it's easier for me to do art mm -hmm. because it's not language-related. Um, uh -huh. I speak a few different languages, and um, when I go to Hungary and when I go to Romania, I get really confused, and I can't speak any one of them. I speak in all the wrong um, grammatical ways and I forget English and my sense of time and space gets totally messed up as well. But when I first started to write in English, I wrote with three dictionaries. That was the first stories. I really, really wanted to tell those stories about my childhood mm -hmm. and about Romania. And I thought the fact that I don't really have the right words in English shouldn't stop me. So I had a Hungarian English big dictionary. Then I had the thesaurus and I had the synonym finder. <laughs> and uh, it was really painful, but I felt like even if it's really, really small steps, in the end I'm going to be able to tell the story. And then after a while it goes much faster. But still, a lot of times when I write in English and when I write about things that happened in a different world, in Romania, in a different time, in a world that doesn't or one exist of your magical anymore. worlds. Right. It's, um, the question for me is, I'm writing this for an English-speaking audience, but yet I want to make it sound like it's spoken in the original language. The, I want to present people speaking the way they really speak there. I don't want them to sound English or American. I want them to sound Romanian or, or Eastern European. And how do you write to an audience who's not familiar with a lot of those insider jokes or little things that 
were going on without being didactic and with still being able to move the story forward and bring in people who might not know the background without them feeling that they don't know enough to appreciate the story. Mm-hmm. So all those are hurdles for me that I have to overcome when I write. And yet I have to say that I... I feel that I can write much better now in English than in Hungarian. That was actually my next question. How do you feel about writing in English? I, right now I feel very comfortable. It's very interesting because I spent different periods of my life in different countries. I was in Romania until I was 21. Then I was uh, in Hungary for eight years, and now I'm here for 10 years already. And so different periods of my life were boxed in in kind of different places. So when I speak in Hungarian... I almost feel like I'm 21 again, mm-hmm. and all this experience, I don't really, I've never spoken about them in Hungarian before, all the things that I'm thinking about now, what I'm doing now, what I'm interested, I'm reading about, and um, when I start to speak in Hungarian, suddenly I feel like I can't really express myself, that I'm younger, I'm not as experienced. When I speak in Romanian, oh my God, I go back to 14, and I'm this 14-year-old, and I'm really struggling to uh, hold on to my identity as a grown, middle-aged woman, (laughs) which I'm trying to be, but it's very, very difficult. And all these different languages bring back different periods and also slightly different personalities. And Mm. I like much more my personality in English than (laughs) in Hungarian. Absolutely. Well, also, um, Sarah from New York has a postscript to her email. Uh, which said, um, Andrea, your work is absolutely amazing. I particularly Thank like the embroidery Sarah. pieces regarding your mother, which I do want to ask you about. We have two more callers on the line for you. I'm going to take one now, one after the break. We have Diane first. Diane, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hello. Hi, Diane. This is my first time calling. Hello. Thank so you for calling. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Um, my question for her is um, basically you, you said, you know, besides teachers stomping on your artwork, what qualities do you think would make a good teacher? Oh, that is such a great question. Especially I think when speaking um, in, you know, a designer becoming a teacher. I think a great teacher is somebody who is empathetic, who can, um, who can remember what it was like for them to be in that vulnerable situation, to be a student. I think it's very good for teachers to take a class every now and then. Um, and just feel what their students are going to, how much um, vulnerability, exposure, um, fear is sometimes in being a student and being an art student and um, expressing yourself and expressing very difficult things sometimes from your experience or from your inner being, exposing yourself. So I think somebody who can empathize with what their students are going through but at the same time, uh, who's some, somebody who's able to also be a little bit hard if they have to and kind of somehow feel what the students need and also being interested in uh, what the students are doing, being genuinely interested in them growing, that doesn't hurt. I remember that right. I was always much better in those classes where I felt teachers cared about me and my work. <laughs> right. I also have one more question. 
Sure. Did you learn the embroidery from your mother? No, no, I didn't. Um, we had to do this in school. In seventh grade, we had home economy, and I really hated it because I was a budding feminist, even though there wasn't any talk like that in Romania. We didn't know it existed. But I always wanted to know why can't I do what the boys are doing, which was woodshop. Mm. And why did I have to sit uh, pretty in a little white apron and a little white kerchief and do this? pointless embroideries, which were these little um, silk napkins that we had to embroider flowers on, and nobody used them. And so I boycotted these classes, and I tried never to finish any of the work. And I didn't think I knew how to embroider until one day I wanted really badly to tell a story um, in embroidery, because I thought that was the most appropriate media. And I just started doing it, and I basically taught myself Wow, that's great. Well, thank you very much, Andrea. You're very welcome. Thank, thank you, you so much for calling. Um, let's talk a little bit about the embroidered pieces. Um, the, I, I believe that the series that Diane was referring to is the My Mother Claimed series. And in the series, you quote your mother as saying things such as, My mother claimed that, at the, that the end of the world will come on August 19, 1999. My mother claimed that if the bread gets placed inside, upside, inside down, Upside down, upside, sorry, down. upside down, somebody will die. My mother claimed that a woman's belly starts growing simply from being married. And my favorite, my mother claimed that I can get a female cold <laughs> sitting on anything cold. So, did your mother really say these things? Yes, she did. She said all of them. I didn't make any of them up. And so that's very interesting. I'm, I'm learning a lot about you during the interview. So your grandmother talked about death, and then your mother told you these very interesting tales. Um, no wonder you're so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Do you have any siblings? Yes, I have a sister. And uh, is she is creative? She works in television in Hungary. Oh, interesting. Yeah, she is. So what inspired you to do these, um, these, these statements, these sayings as embroideries <coughs> as opposed to any other medium? When I moved to America, I realized that a lot of, the, um, of these sayings that it wasn't just my mother who said you get the female called any Hungarian, young or old that you ask, even today, even a child would tell you that if a woman sits down on a cold surface or walks around without slippers on, slippers are very important in Hungarian culture, if you don't have the slippers on, you get the female cold. And it's such a widespread belief. And so <coughs> I moved to America, and I realized that people didn't know about this, didn't take them seriously, and didn't get female colds. And that started me... Um, to question a lot of them, like if you go out with wet hair, you get meningitis and die. Right. And <laughs> if you masturbate, you go blind. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have those because we didn't even talk about those things. <laughs> like those things didn't exist. But I learned that people don't stick out their tongues when they kiss. And, um, <laughs> and so I started to think about them as a very particular regional kind of story or narrative that exists there and doesn't exist here. And there is a genre of Hungarian um, kitchen embroidery, which I'm collecting, actually. Um, they are words and images embroidered on large uh, swaths of white fabric. And there's a particular genre of these embroideries that I, Im that I collect the most and those are the ones in which women tell their husbands what their expectations are. So they're called normative embroideries, and they would say something like, my little husband, if you don't come home on time, you will find the replacement here and not me. 
or <laughs> my husband is not going to the neighbor lady to eat his dinner, but he comes straight home from work, or mm-hmm. things like that. And so when I realized how many of these unusual superstitions and beliefs are that I brought with me, and I still believe in them somehow, even though nowadays I try to sit on cold things to kind of train myself not to get the female cold, um, I thought the best way to tell these stories would be as these very short statements with a little image in an embroidered form, kind of how in the traditional Hungarian embroideries women told, like, this is the rule. They laid down the rule for their husbands. And so that's how I started them. Did the work of Judy Chicago influence you at all in her Needlepoint series? No, I'm not familiar with Oh, I think you'd really like that. I'll I'll show you some of that. We have another caller on the line. Um, We have Suzanne on the line. Suzanne, is still there? We'll see if uh, she comes back. Um, Interesting that you were talking before about wanting to be in woodshop as opposed to uh, home economics. Because I read that when you were little and people asked you and your sister what you wanted to be when you grow up, your sister said she wanted to be an actress (laughs) or a ballerina, and you said you wanted to be a man. Yes, (laughs) and that's true. Uh-huh. I, I wasn't uh, aware. This is, I mean, it sounds really strange when I say it now, but for me it was very natural. I remember that I wasn't aware that girls become women and boys become men. I thought it was much more fluid and you can become what you want to become when mm-hmm. you grow up. And so I thought, well, I'm a girl for the time being, but just wait until I grow up. I'll be a man and my name will be Andrew. And that was my firm desire. And people kept telling me, no, no, you're going to be, you know, Andrea and whatever. And I thought, well, how do they know? They don't know what I want to be. I thought that being a man or being a woman is a profession, just like being a doctor or something else. And I, my firm belief was I'm going to be a man. I even imagined myself as um, in a suit with a leather, black leather bag with a certain haircut, walking down the street, um, happy that now I'm a fulfilled grown-up. And I remember the moment when I realized, it was a very particular moment, I think I was six years old, when I realized that it's kind of a rigid one-way thing, like you're a girl, you're going to be a woman, there's no, like, escape out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, or it's it's particularly (laughs) difficult if you do. So do you still want to be a man, or are you happy now being a woman? I'm happy with what I am right now. I, yeah, I don't think about it like that anymore. Like, I'm a man, I'm a woman, Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm who I am. And I feel comfortable with a percentage amount of male and female that is inside me. You um, do a number of uh, self-portraits in your work. Have you ever drawn yourself as a man? No, never. It was just an inner image. Um, last year, you uh, designed, illustrated, created the Publicum calendar. Um, you document, documented taking an imaginary trip to Serbia, and you wrote that you were inspired by folk stories, songs, and fairy tales, as well as political slogans and receipts. And I was wondering what political slogans and receipts you were inspired by in doing this. That was recipes. It was cooking recipes <coughs> from the embargo time during the war in Serbia, um, there were women who came up with recipes how to make cakes out of almost nothing because they didn't have a lot of food. It kind of reminded me of Romania. We didn't have much food either. 
And somebody came up with this uh, recipe called embargo cake, which uh, only Fantastic. yeah, it only had a, like a little lump of sugar and a little lump of flour, and I don't think it had eggs at all. I don't know what kept it together, but people, um, somebody published this in a newspaper, so people shared the recipe among each other. And um, they got together and they were eating it and they were pretending like this is a really festive cake to keep up that kind of spirit of not giving up uh, because it was so hopeless. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the recipe. And then the political slogan was um, when they, they adopted basically the slogans that they used during football games, during soccer games, um, which were, they kind of translate to something like now all together attack or something like that that mm -hmm. people chant at football matches and people just brought that out onto the streets and um, they went out at like 7 o'clock to kind of wipe out the 7 o'clock official news on TV and they made as much noise as possible and they chanted these sports slogans which became political. Now you talked earlier on in the show about the um, rigor that is really required, uh, that you require of your students and of yourself um, to really ever get good at anything. And, and when looking at the calendar, one can't help but imagine um, the massive amount of time that it took for you to do this, the, the, the incredibly detailed drawings, the extraordinary amount of yourself that you put into this. Generally, um, well, for a project like this, how long did this take you to do? This one took about, let's see, <laughs> we started in uh, April, and the calendar was printed in October. So I would say from like April, May to September, it took me to make the, the wow. calendar. And w tell us about how you work. Do you work during the day? Do you work at night? Do you I work every moment that I don't teach. <laughs> So, um, day, night, um, weekends, whenever there's any time at all. So, I don't have any of this. I have a preference for working at night mm -hmm. because it's quiet and nobody um, places any kind of demands on me or the phone is not ringing or I don't have to return email. I really like that quiet and I'm a night person. But I work during the day if I have to, and it doesn't matter for me. Let's talk about the print cover that you did in 2004, the extraordinary embroidery of the heart. Um, first, I wanted to ask you about your um, fetish for hearts. Mm -hmm. What is it about hearts that fascinate you so much? And, and for our listeners, um, they're not the Jim Dine kind of hearts. They're much more um, actual um, scientific hearts. Um, what interests me about heart is how we believe or people believe in Western culture that the seat of emotion <coughs> is in the heart, but at the same time the heart is such a physical piece of meat, it's mm -hmm. like such an organ, um, and this kind of duality or this, this kind of strange um, duo of being thought of such a emotional and um, such a, a feeling and almost like a spiritual um, 
place, but at the same time, it's also a very physical place. And that just really um, fascinates me. It's, it's similar to how in the brain, how the brain is really a physical thing, but at the same time, thoughts are so immaterial, or are they, and how those two are connected. Um, it's just that the heart, for me, it's just a more beautiful shape, I guess, than the brain. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess part of it is also just aesthetic, how raw it can be to see an organ like that. Yes. It took you 150 hours to embroider yes. the heart. Had you shown it to uh, Joyce Kay and Stephanie Scriven, the, Joyce Kay, obviously, the, the editor of, of print, and, and Stephanie, the... Uh, art director at the time, did you show them the idea? I remember reading something about uh, your fear that um, if they wanted to make any changes, it would be awfully hard to do after <laughs> 150 hours of embroidery. Um, I haven't shown them. Actually, Stephen um, Brower was the art director when I did the heart. Oh, okay. It was still Stephen's time, and uh, Stephen saw and Joyce saw the sketch. It was a quite detailed but still line sketch of the embroidery and then I started embroidering it and I only showed it when it was done. And it was the first time when I was bringing it in that it struck me that usually we work in Photoshop or not me but a lot of designers work in Photoshop and so clients want, and this is something designers usually complain about, that clients want changes and that people have to go back and do those changes and sometimes they are not for the better and I thought well how is this going to happen if they will want changes we never worked together on a visual project before yeah. and I thought oh my god am I going to have to pull out the stitches or start over <laughs> oh, that's interesting um, I, I'd love to talk to you for another hour Andrea but we don't have time we have to close the show but I just wanted to um, ask you one more quick question about, about the print cover because this is really a more personal one. I read that when you were embroidering the cover that your husband read to you while you were working and I read that you started loving each other the minute you saw each other and have loved each other ever since. That's and true. I, I love that story. Is he a designer as well? No, he actually works in, works in human rights. Mm -hmm. He um, works for an immigrant rights groups where he uh, directs a health health-related and immigrant-related issues. He does advocacy and policy for immigrants to this country. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'd like to let our listeners know that Andrea has a show up right now called My Country at the Hungarian Cultural Center. The next issue of McSweeney's features her work on the cover, and you can also see her work at www.andreadezo.com. Thank you for listening. David Carson is next week. And please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.